Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, reports continue to surface this week of vaccine line jumpers who get a COVID-19 shot ahead of those who need one more urgently. In the Bay Area and Los Angeles, vaccine access codes meant for vulnerable communities of color circulated by text to some ineligible Californians who use them at mass vaccination sites. The stories have sparked anger, and questions about the ethics and effectiveness of our vaccine distribution system. We get medical ethicist Zeke Emanuel's thoughts after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Stories of people texting and misusing vaccine access codes to get a COVID-19 shot when they're not eligible for one at Oakland Coliseum and Cal State LA, separately so-called vaccine chasers gathering at pharmacies and clinics in hopes of receiving a leftover dose, the reports of vaccine line jumpers who, knowingly or not, get vaccines meant to reach Black and Latino communities, eligible seniors and essential workers, are sparking outrage and fresh criticism of the state's vaccine rollout. Joining me now is medical ethicist Dr. Zeke Emanuel. Welcome to Forum, Dr. Emanuel. Lovely to be here again. It's always wonderful. You have the best questions in the country. (laughs) Thanks. A lot of that is because we have such great listeners who ask great questions, but we always enjoy having you on. And I have to say, you know, these stories of vaccine line jumping have touched a nerve as people struggle to make appointments for elderly relatives or as communities of color that have been so disproportionately hit get pushed further behind. First, I'm curious what you make of the reaction. What do you think is operating here in the emotions it's bringing up? Well, let's first talk about the emotions of the people who are line jumping. Um, You know, I think all of us want to get a vaccine. Um, I say all of us. Uh, A large majority of Americans want to get a vaccine, see it as essential, um, and they're in very short supply. uh, And that inevitably induces, how can I get that thing, which is very valuable to Mm me, um, but is in short supply, um, unless they're sort of rigorous policing of that and real penalties for people who uh, knowingly um, violate rules and laws uh, to jump the line. I think, you know, that's uh, first a natural inclination. And second of all, um, we will prevent it. Second, 
it's inevitable that the people who succeed at that are, um, in general, well-off, successful people. They, you know, people who are well-off and successful, they've already won the race of life. Uh, they know how to um, get the best of a system, figure it out. Many of them have time and computer savvy and things that allow them to uh, get ahead. And, you know, we all have a built-in view of uh, what's just and what's ethical. And when people knowingly for their own self-interest violate our sense of justice, you know, that brings outrage and the emotion you're seeing to people who are uh, uh, jumping the line and using their uh, ability, whether it's connections or knowledge or computer savvy to jump the line, um, uh, does, you know, it is uh, unethical, unjust, and it brings its uh, outrage by people who are doing the right thing, waiting in line for their turn. So I think, I think the inclination to get it and the inclination to um, uh, condemn people who are uh, violating the rules of justice, uh, I think are both understandable. Yes. That doesn't make them right. I, I, I think people who are jumping the line are wrong, but uh, I think understanding the psychology helps us see where it's coming from. Mm. Well, how severe a problem do you think line jumping is? Do you think this is happening frequently enough, for example, that it is undermining public health and safety goals? Uh, it's probably not happening uh, sufficiently frequently to undermine public safety goals. But it does, I think, reemphasize to people a problem which we've had. Um, and now I'm going to get political over, you know, maybe the last 40 years of, you know, individualism, me first, um, and a diminution and a, uh, of the community, you know, the common good. I think that's infected America. It's over-infected America. And it's bad. Uh, there are many, many things in our lives where the community good is the thing we should really be striving for. And if we constantly put our own selfish interests first, uh, that compromises our ability to be a great country. And I think that's uh, what you're seeing um, uh, by this. You know, I'm just going to do whatever I can to, to maximize my situation. Um, and I think pe people are rightly rightly upset about that because it suggests a kind of corruption and greed and selfishness that we really have to get past in this country. And that, that I, that's what I think it, people are responding to. People have reported feeling guilty if they happen to benefit from line jumping. For example, getting a vaccine that they believed was left over or from a no-show or might be thrown away. You were mentioning sort of what goes on in in the minds of people who are who are line jumping and the stress that we're feeling of vaccine scarcity. Is it okay? Is it ever okay to get or offer a vaccine that would otherwise be thrown out? Or should more efforts be made to find the eligible candidate? Um, thank you very much, because I think I haven't made an ethical uh, distinction between two cases. And I think you just uh, made that distinction. And I want to emphasize it and draw it out. Um, if you happen to be around and there's extra vaccine and they give it to you, that's okay. That's, I don't think that's unethical. And even if you're waiting in line in case there's an opportunity for an extra vaccine, I think that's okay. And that's ethical. The worst thing that could happen is we waste vaccine. We have, you know, 40 doses and 
we throw them down the drain instead of, or in the biohazard container, instead of uh, using them and, and protecting people. That is different than uh, knowingly getting one of these special codes meant for minority communities or other people who are in priority and hopping in line. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a physician. I'm not in frontline healthcare work, um, but I could, I could, I presume, get to the top of the line as a healthcare worker. I have a medical license, blah, blah, blah. That would be wrong and that would be unethical. On the other hand, if I happen to be uh, uh, at a place that is giving vaccines and they have 20 extra at uh, five o'clock uh, because there were no shows or you know, they had extra, they got an extra vial and it would go bad. My getting a shot is not unethical in my opinion. So those are two different situations. I think one is rightly condemned as unjust, unethical. And the other is no, that actually is perfectly acceptable. And it's avoiding an even worse situation of uh, wasting a very scarce uh, resource. So the argument that getting a vaccine is good for the collective, let's not waste this valuable resource. Though that said, it does, there are certain people who are able to wait versus others. And I don't know if that starts to come up against equitable questions. There have also been questions raised about, say, how pharmacies are setting up their own system for allocating extra doses, potentially to people who are in the, in the shop at the pharmacy as the, the, vaccination process is closing up for the day and they had a couple of no-shows and things like that. Are you okay with that? Do you think it's okay for these entities to set up their own systems for allocating extra doses? Well, in the absence of a centralized system, I think that is what we're inevitably going to get, right? Uh, If we had a situation where, um, you know, here's what you do when you have spare doses, you know, go down to the supermarket next door, something like that. Um, And if you don't have that, do give it, give it, give it to people who are older or whatever. Um, I think uh, um, it's really important to do and uh, make sure that someone gets that vaccine and, and preferably someone who is high on the priority list. Um, so I think that, that, that gives me less worry than people who are uh, literally, you know, uh, changing their birth dates or, uh, you know, uh, uh, getting some of these codes or, manipulating the system by not telling the truth. Yes. I feel like you are, by, by mentioning a centralized system, I remember an, uh, a Vox piece that I had read in December where they quoted a doctor saying that the public desperation for a last-minute shot is really signifying a top-down failure of the federal government. Are you? <laughs> are, do you think that plays a role? <laughs> Well, I do think that there is a problem with the way we make these decisions about allocating resources. Um, You know, we have the uh, uh, ACIP, um, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Policy at the CDC, making recommendations, but they're only recommendations, and then each state has to introduce things, and then different states are doing different things, some of which are more ethical, some of which are less ethical, um, uh, and you know, some of that, some of which are for purely political reasons, um, and some of which are really trying to get, um, uh, you know, the the most important people, whether they're vulnerable or because of the way where they work, um, vaccinated. Um, that is, I think, not a workable system, and it does create a lot of 
problems um, and unethical behaviors in and of itself. And I'll just give you an example. In Massachusetts, they had a situation where uh, people 75 and over got it and all healthcare, all people who work in healthcare settings, um, not just frontline healthcare workers. So you ended up in a situation where researchers in laboratories or people in billing who have no patient exposure are no high risk, who happen to be, you know, 20 and 30 years old getting vaccination before say people uh, 65 to 75. Now that seems to me wrong, unethical, um, uh, and yet that's the way the state did it rather than following the uh, ACIP recommendations. Mm. Similarly, when you have different states doing different things, uh, I think that creates a kind of uh, moral confusion on the public when what's happening is you know, basically rationing of a scarce, very important medical resource. We're talking about vaccine line jumping in the fairness and efficacy of state and national vaccine distribution systems with Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, Professor of Medical Ethics and Health Policy and Vice Provost of Global Affairs at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also a former member of President Biden's Transition COVID-19 Advisory Board, and his latest book is Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare? What questions do you have for Dr. Emanuel? Have you or someone you know tried to line jump? What happened? Do you think California is allocating vaccines fairly? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And this listener tweets, yesterday I got two texts, an email and a phone call, letting me know that as a teacher, I am eligible for the COVID vaccine. But after trying throughout the day, I had no luck in making an appointment. It is a chaotic and random scramble out there. We'll get more of your comments after the break and talk more with Dr. Emanuel. Stay with us. I'm Nina Kim. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about vaccine line jumping, the fairness and efficacy of our state and national vaccine distribution system. And we're joined by Dr. Zeke Emanuel, Professor of Medical Ethics and Health Policy and Vice Provost of Global Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. You, our listeners, are with us at 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Dr. Emanuel, the, the line jumping problem raises broader questions about how to set up a fair and effective distribution system. There might not be a perfect distribution structure, but can you explain generally how to craft an equitable vaccine distribution plan amid a pandemic like this? What should be the fundamental guiding principles? <laughs> um, so now we're going back to my ethics class, and we, and we really did write 
an article on, on this. And I, I think that they're, you know, best way to think about it, three fundamental ethical principles that we need to balance. One is we want to do the most good and limit harm. Uh, and that drives us to, you know, thinking about people who are at high risk of infection, thinking about how we can reduce transmission uh, and things like that. Second is a sort of non-discrimination or a justice principle. We shouldn't discriminate among people on the basis of uh, irrelevant criteria, typically like religious affiliation shouldn't be a grounds. Um, interestingly, in this case, uh, uh, age is obviously going to be a criteria. We normally say you can't discriminate on the basis of age, but this is a case of where discriminating or in, in more, you know, giving preference to people who are older uh, is probably right because those are people at higher ri highest risk for infection. People over 85, super high risk for infection and dying, people over 75, people over 65. Um, and then there's the third, which is um, we should not exacerbate um, inequities that exist in the system. So we already have, as we all know, serious uh, inequities based upon race uh, in this uh, uh, COVID situation. You know, more minorities, whether um, Latinx or Black Americans, are at risk of getting infected, getting hospitalized, and dying. And we should not use our vaccine, vaccine distribution to exacerbate uh, those inequities. We should use our vaccine uh, distribution system to reduce those equities. So those are the three principles we really need to balance. And um, they do need to be balanced. You can't optimize each one of them just to give you a concrete case. If you really focus only on people over 65 or over 75, more whites are in those groups. If you want to minimize the inequities with uh, Blacks and Hispanics, uh, you have to actually not just allocate on the basis of age. Uh, you have to take into account minority status and the communities they come from as well. So this is going to require uh, uh, important balancing. Um, and you, you, know, you have to remember that there are other harms other than just getting COVID and dying from COVID that matter you know, closing schools matter. So you might want to prioritize teachers. So mm -hmm. this is how we have to begin to think about uh, realizing the principles. And I think those are principles everyone agrees to, by the way. So, so then what do you think of California's plan? We're in phase 1A, which allows vaccination of healthcare workers, long-term care residents. We've moved to phase 1B, which allows vaccination of people over 65 and people in the ag and food, emergency services, education and childcare sectors. What do you yes. think of that? That's a good balance? <laughs> in, I would say if you had to say, I, I'd say overall, that is a very good balance. And if you ask me, I would say in, in the second group, um, I, you know, I have been out in public. I, I think that a major priority ought to be put on uh, vaccinating teachers and educational staff to get schools working again. Um, now, it's not because there's lots of risk of death in that group. But I think schools are integral. There's lots of harms that we're seeing to children. And we know that those are much more long-term harms. Does that mean we prior prioritize teachers above everyone else? I'm not sure about that. But let me just say, in, in uh, I think there are like something on the order across the country, 6.4 million uh, 
primary and secondary school teachers and staff uh, at schools in the U.S. Mm-hmm. That roughly four days of vaccination. Okay, I think that's a kind of important priority. Our um, uh, agriculture workers who are working in close proximity in order to feed the rest. Yes, very high priority in my opinion. Also, um, so I think that's the way I would think about it. And both. You know, especially agricultural workers, they're going to be minority populations. So you get both minimizing uh, harms and uh, reducing inequities. And I think, again, you try to look for a situation where you're getting lots of benefits and uh, uh, realizing the different ethical principles that we mentioned. Well, let me go to caller Angela in San Francisco. Hi, Angela. Hi, can you hear me? I can. Okay, great. So somebody forwarded me by text a code. um, And at that point, I didn't know anything about this situation. I signed up answering all questions I was asked in terms of my race and my profession, um, my zip code. Honestly, I got an appointment. um, And now that I know that this code was likely intended for a group to which I don't belong, Um, I feel like I have an ethical dilemma as to whether I keep this appointment that I'm not entitled to or cancel it. Um, And the dilemma in my head is that I don't know who the appointment will go to if I don't take it. So it's kind of like at this point, what do I do? That's the right thing to do. Angela, thanks. Advice for Angela, Dr. Emanuel? Oh, just because I'm an ethicist, you want me to give (laughs) advice? Really? Um, Let me let me just say, I think, you know, we we ethicists have a word for this kind of thing, which is the assurance problem. If I'm listening to you right, Angela, if you, what you want to say, if I was assured that my spot would actually go to a minority who this code was intended for, I would actually have no problem doing that. I'm at least hearing that. I don't want to put words into your mouth, but that sounds like what you were saying. Uh, But I don't have assurance of that. And if I give it up and some other, you know, call it Beverly Hills resident takes this, um, that would... I'd feel like a chump. And that is a serious problem. You don't want to be a chump. Uh, you have done what you think is the ethical thing, but you're also having, you, you understand that it's maybe not optimal from what was intended. You know, I will tell you that if I were in your shoes and I've had to think about this, um, I would uh, probably not take it. I don't want that on my conscience. I don't want to feel, feel guilty. Um, I'd rather go around with the masks, uh, limit my outdoor activities, um, uh, or limit my activities in retail shopping, going to restaurants, et cetera. Um, and, and I would wait. I think you'll probably end up waiting, you know, probably another month, maybe six weeks to the end of March, mid, mid-April. Um, I don't know your exact circumstance, so I'm, I'm just guessing here. Um, but that's what I would, would, uh, would, would suggest. Well, Angela, you didn't thanks. do anything wrong, but that doesn't mean the actions can't be wrong. Well, well, thank you, Angela, for sharing that scenario. I'm going to take one more, I believe. It's from Tony in Oakland. Hi, Tony. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I work full-time from home, though I work in Instacart sometimes on the weekends for extra cash. This year, I've worked only nine hours for Instacart, but every Instacarter can get vaccinated if they choose to. I have an appointment to get vaccinated on Sunday. Should I cancel the appointment given how little I'm in the grocery store working? Ooh, you know you have you have callers who have a real conscience here, and I, I do. think and, and and you know it. I, I have to say that you're thinking about this, even though you're clearly in 
you know, given the rules, you are within, you're coloring within the lines. Um, uh, you know, that heartens me. Um, again, uh, uh, and, and I think the fact that you're feeling, you know, eh, it's not that that rule really wasn't intended for me. Maybe they should have said if you work more than, you know, 20 hours a week or 10 hours a week um, and it's consistent that, you know, I think that's what you're what you're arguing um, at, you know, I don't want to be mealy mouthed about it. Again, I have a feeling that if I were you, I'm looking forward. It's going to be about four weeks, maybe six weeks till I get a vaccine. Um, I probably would. Uh, I don't want to feel guilty about this. Um, but, you know, if you said if, if you know, you said, all right, if I get vaccinated, I'm going to do more Instacart and help more people. Um, you know, that's a, that's a, a reasonable rationale, too. Tony, thanks for the question. Richard writes, to what degree are people self-justifying the line jumping based on the grounds that the rollout is unfair? For example, an older teacher not being able to get a vaccine because there's no prioritization of these vulnerable workers. Uh, I know, Dr. Emanuel, that, and, and you can respond directly to Richard's question, but also you were mentioning that you felt like, at least in terms of the categories of prioritization, California was on the right track. One of the challenges has been that eligibility really depends on where you live. And we also just did this show on how California has been failing to reach vulnerable Latino elderly and essential workers where they are. So, for example, in Orange County, people are being vaccinated who are in education in other sectors, teachers, as Richard is mentioning. But in neighboring L.A. County, healthcare workers and those over 65 are still only the people who are mainly getting vaccinated because of limited supplies. So so this way of doing it based on where you live, the implications of this disparity, just wondering what that brings up for you. Uh, th there are so many important points that you have raised there. Um, uh, and Richard raises, uh, uh, again, part of what is problematic is, and we all have this reaction. I think it's, again, quite natural. You know, if, if um, violating the rule becomes acceptable and everyone's getting away with it, then we feel like chumps if we stick to the rule. Um, and that is, I think, what you're hearing in Richard's question. And it's a, again, a perfectly natural, you know, if the rules are being followed, um, then we're, we're going to follow the rule. We all do this. Um, when the rules stop being followed and other people are getting it, then we don't want to feel like chumps and we're being taken advantage of by those people who are more uh, less scrupulous. Um, so what's the answer to that problem? The answer to that problem is we've got to enforce the rules with mm -hmm. Uh, strongly and make sure that um, uh, they're they're actually adhered to almost all the time. That's the assurance issue. And I think when we have laws, we need to make sure people are adhering to them. And when we see, you know, especially government officials or the privileged, e uh, easily able to circumvent that, that undermines trust in the system. And we, we've had just way too much of that, especially over the last um, four years, but, you know, really over the last 40 years, that's been growing and growing and growing. Um, so I, I think the issue of neighboring counties having different rules is a problem. And one of, you know, it, it goes all the way back to how uh, the Trump administration decided to distribute vaccine, which is on the basis of population, which I think is not an ideal uh. way of distributing to the states. Um, 
for all sorts of reasons. California is one of those states, if I'm not mistaken, and I don't have the numbers right at my fingertip, but California is a place that has a high number of healthcare workers relative to population compared to other states. So if you give equal on the basis of states, California is going to have fewer vaccines for its healthcare workers, and therefore um, uh, there will be a shortage when it it'll take longer, basically, to get to all the healthcare workers. And when other states are moving on to say tier two B with younger people or uh, teachers or grocery store workers, California in general will still be on the healthcare workers. And that's what you're seeing. Um, at, you know, I, I've made an argument that really it's got to be the COVID burden that's going on in the state or about to come on in the state that really ought to direct uh, where the va- how much a state gets vaccine. So if tier one is healthcare workers and people say over 75 or people over 65, then we have to look at the proportion of the population that are in those categories and distribute vaccine on the basis of that, not on the basis of strict population where you include children and others. You know, so states, for example, that have high numbers of elderly, they would get more vaccine uh, and, and legitimately so. Hmm. We're talking with Dr. Zeke Emanuel, professor of medical ethics and health policy at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also a former member of President Biden's transition COVID-19 advisory board. And if you have vaccine ethics questions for for Zeke Emanuel, give us a call 866-733-6786-866-733-6786. Our email address forum at kqed.org or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. Dr. Emanuel, as a member, a former member of President Biden's transition COVID-19 advisory board, can you talk about some of the immediate challenges that this administration faced with respect to the rollout? Because I remember reports that the Trump administration had no mass vaccination plan in place when the new administration came in. Is this an accurate characterization of what happened? Well, I I wouldn't say no plan. I think that was maybe a a little hyperbole, but uh, I mean, because they did have this plan of we're going to distribute it to to states based on population and and there was, you know, we're going to send it to states and then let states distribute it down. Um, I think if if there was a major deficiency, one of them was um, the idea that you really needed to use all potential channels to get out to people that there wasn't going to be one overwhelming solid channel, you know, pharmacies uh, or, you know, mass vaccination sites. Um, and, and I think that was a mistake that they had not planned and coordinated with the states to try to use all potential vaccine uh, opportunities. Uh, so I think one of the major uh, innovations and in, in actual uh elements of progress from the Biden administration has been, okay, uh, we're going to try to open up, uh, you know, have max vaccination sites. We will have federal qualified health centers uh, do it. We'll have health systems and hospitals uh, do it. We'll have pharmacies uh, do it. We're going to have doctors where we can uh, in their offices uh, do it. We're going to have mobile units do it. Um, we're going to have pop-up vaccination sites, work with health systems. Uh, you know, mine at the University of Pennsylvania has done a number of pop-up sites in underserved communities um, of West Philadelphia. So I think uh, that is a major uh, advance because, you know, for some people, 
mass vaccination sites, pulling into a stadium is going to work. Uh, but for many people, especially in minority communities, that may not be the way, but a mobile clinic or a pop-up clinic at a church, that will be the way. And so I think the recognition that there's, you know, with a, a population of 330 million people, um, uh, getting to, to all those people is going to require a variety of different approaches. And when you look at successful states like uh, West Virginia, that have really gotten to pretty close to 20% of the population vaccinated already. You know, what I think is is true is they've used more traditional approaches and traditional avenues than big box pharmacies. And uh, they've used local pharmacies and call in numbers rather than computers and, and other things that are, you know, elderly people are more comfortable with that know their clientele and things like that. Now that approach may work great in West Virginia or North Dakota. It may not work so well in California. Um, so you need a variety of approaches. And that I don't think the Trump administration had done and the Biden administration had to really put into place. And we, we discussed that extensively. I'm curious also what you think about how the federal government, some of their vaccine sites or things that they're helping states do are additional vaccine supplies that don't affect the state supply, for example. Like they're doing this in two separate ways. Why are they, we, we just have about 30 seconds before the break, but, but wondering if this is a short answer in terms of whether you think it's a good thing to do it this way. Um, I, I'm actually not qualified to say good. Okay. In general, I think having multiple different things creates complexity and confusion. And again, as we have pointed out in multiple points in this conversation, that creates a kind of suspicion that other people are getting ahead rather than trust in the system. And I think having one clear approach uh, is likely to breed much more trust in the system. More with Dr. Zeke Emanuel after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about vaccine line jumping this hour and the fairness and efficacy of state and national vaccine distribution systems. We're joined by Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, Professor of Medical Ethics and Health Policy and Vice Provost of Global Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also a former member of President Biden's Transition COVID-19 Advisory Board. And we're taking your questions, comments, stories, 866-733-6786. Email address forum at kqed.org. You can reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And Jess writes, why isn't mental health considered in getting vaccinated? Many of my friends battling mental illness have killed themselves since the pandemic started. Hmm. Dr. Emanuel. Um, I think it's, <laughs> as you might imagine, it's very hard to figure out um, how to screen on that basis um, and uh, vaccinate people, uh, you know, on that basis. Um, it's, and that 
I think just makes it hard as a, you know, valid screening uh, test, you know, going to a psychiatrist. Well, there are a lot of people who go to psychiatrists who don't have serious mental illness. Um, look, what it does highlight, I think, is another aspect of this pandemic, which is uh, the suffering, mental anguish uh, that uh, everyone is feeling, and in particular, people who are already sort of on the brink. We're seeing a lot of that in children, and that's, I think, extremely worrisome for being uh, long-term, uh, but we're seeing it among many people who are isolated. You know, I know that it's it's uh, true for uh, uh, my mother and others, it, it's, it's really lacking socialization is not something people are used to. We're social animals. And therefore we, uh, when we are deprived of, you know, hugging, of talking, of breaking bread with other people, it's really, it's a very serious deprivation and, you know, undermines our equal mental equilibrium. Uh, how the system copes with that is, is I think, really important. I'm not sure the solution is prioritize those people for vaccines. I think we have to prioritize for mortality. We have to pr prioritize for reducing transmission. Um, uh, and uh, I think those are really, really important. Let me go to caller Ben in Oakland. Hi, Ben. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for taking my call. Dr. Emanuel, thank you, too. Um, I am nice a to be healthy here with you. 52 year old. I'm a healthy 52-year-old in Oakland. Um, I work in Oakland. I coach in Oakland. My school sent out um, notice of current employment so educators could get vaccines, which I certainly appreciate. And I went ahead and did it, but mainly not because I'm concerned about exposure at coaching. It's because I work my day job in an industry that's been totally ignored. Um, I'm in trash collection and recycling. And, um, you know, I've been at work every single day for the last year. Um, we're into your businesses, we're into your neighborhoods, we're picking up your trash, we're in the medical offices shredding files, um, and, and not one single mention of waste collectors uh, in any sort of category of necessary workers. We can't do it on Zoom. <laughs> um, so I went ahead and got the vaccine uh, enabled by my school where I coach part-time um, because I'm, I'm irritated that my industry has been completely ignored. We've had half a dozen COVID positives at work which just means guys are out and more work for everybody else. Um, and, and we literally can't do it from any place but, you know, out in our trucks. Ben, thank you um, for reminding us for what you do. Dr. Emanuel. Yes, well, for, first of all, there's no doubt that trash collection is an essential job. And it's, again, like many, many of the essential jobs that we've really understood, um, undervalued and uh, undercompensated. On the other hand, um, I would suspect that your risk of getting COVID from your job is relatively low um, uh, as compared to agricultural workers uh, working side by side with people and or uh, um, grocery store workers who are meeting scores of people. Um, and I think that's probably the rationale for why trash collectors, not because you're not an essential worker, but because of the, what's the risk from the occupation? I would suspect that many of the people who got infected, it wasn't because of the activity at work. It was uh, outside of work where they got uh, exposed. Um, and I think, you know, that's something that, uh, uh, you know, we're all subject to uh, if we don't adhere to the public health measures of uh, uh, social distancing, not going into big crowds, wearing masks, et cetera. That's, I think, 
uh, why uh, you haven't seen um, uh, trash workers higher on the list of uh, those people um, uh, who should be prioritized for vaccine. I'm, I, and again, I, I'm hypothesizing here since I don't have uh, a lot of concrete information on it. Well, Gary writes, I'm surprised that cashiers and grocery stores are not prioritized for vaccination. The nature of their job puts them face to face with large numbers of people of all ages without interruption all through their shift. They are at a much greater risk of contracting and spreading the virus than I am. Dr. Emanuel, do you have an opinion about whether to prioritize first doses and getting more people getting first doses before second doses? So th this is, yeah, I, I am in the in, in the midst of thinking about this, and this is, you know, we, this is a extremely complicated question. And he, here's what I would say: um, we would not even be debating this question, I think, if we had a uh, if the variants and the more infectious variants, like the UK B one one seven and some of the other variants that are coming up. Uh, weren't here. Um, many of us, and I, I wrote an op-ed uh, last week in the New York Times, um, are worried that we are all seeing these big drops in cases, big drops in mortality, and we are, you know, celebrating that, feeling positive about that. And those of us who are looking at, well, that's looking at, you know, what's happened a few weeks ago, if we try to anticipate what's going to happen two or three weeks, we're worried about these variants coming in and leading to an explosion of cases that we've seen in, you know, Britain and Ireland and Israel. Um, and to fend that off, we, you know, think, okay, well, what can we do? You know, making sure everyone's wearing masks, et cetera. But there's also this possibility that you could give a vaccine while not maybe 95% protective, but maybe 50 or 75 or 85% protective for uh, and postpone the second dose, not get rid of the second dose, but postpone it so we can get more people vaccinated. Yes. I do think that is an approach that ought to be seriously evaluated. When I look at the data, I think it's probably something that uh, we should uh, uh, do. Um, I'm not sure we go necessarily 12 weeks, maybe we go to six or eight weeks and try to get as many people uh, vaccinated uh, with the first dose and uh, if not fully protected, partially protected um, to avoid the problem of the uh, uh, of these new uh, variants that will almost inevitably, if we don't take action, we are worried that it's going to lead to an upsurge. So that's the way I think about it. And um, I do, you know, I, I have very dear friends whose opinion I respect greatly who are, well, we're worried that, you know, the immune, the, the neutralizing antibodies um, don't necessarily stay up. You don't get as many if you postpone that second dose. Um, all of that is possible. We should remember that the three weeks for Pfizer and the four weeks for Moderna, those time frames were adopted not based upon immunology and medicine, but for, you know, getting through the the research trials and getting a vaccine out in, for people as fast as possible. Huh. Um, uh, that's where we have data. So the trade-off here to some degree is, you know, how serious a problem do you think the B117 variant and other variants are? Second, 
How certain do you want to be that you're going to fully protect people? Third, is it better to partially protect more people and then come back and give them full protection? Um, Those are the kinds of questions that need to be balanced. And we really do need to have a thoughtful discussion of it, not just say, well, this is what we did in the trial and that's what we're going to do and we're not going to deviate from it. Can you connect that or or isn't that connected to some extent to thinking about global vaccine distribution? And the reason that I say this, and I know this is your area, and I'm sure you are thinking about this as well, but just in terms of the responsibility of making sure more impoverished countries obtain doses, because the longer that you allow other nations not to be able to vaccinate its population at a reasonable level, the the more likely there are also going to be variants that develop. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This issue of the global distribution is exceedingly important. I totally agree with you. And, you know, people who keep emphasizing, look, we have to think about the whole world, the 7.8 billion people who live in the world and not just the United States are absolutely right. Um, So when you think about how should we distribute vaccine in the whole world, um, you know, lots of people saying it's got to be equitable. But then the question is, what does equitable mean? And I would say in a rough and ready way, there have been two views of equitable to the whole world that have come out. One has been propagated by the WHO and COVAX, which is the international organization to buy vaccine and distribute it to low income countries. And those, the WHO and COVAX have said, it's by population. We're going to give to every country 3% of their population, and then move it up to 20% of the population as more vaccine becomes available. Um, And then after 20%, we'll do it by the amount of of COVID that's in the country. Um, My group, and and I put together a group of public health experts, ethicists, and and others have said, no, no, that's not what equity means. Equity means that you take the vaccine and distribute it based upon COVID burden. How many people are dying from it? How severe is the economic dislocation? Um, And those are two very different approaches, and they lead to two very different uh, ways of distributing the vaccine. And I'll I'll just give you a sort of simple way of thinking about it. There are some countries um, that have a big population, but not a big COVID burden. Um, And uh, there are other countries of equal population, roughly, that have a high COVID burden. Peru is an example. Do you give the same to a country with a low COVID burden, but, you know, say 60 million people or Peru with a high COVID burden and the same a number of people. No, that seems to me unethical and inequitable. You want to give more to Peru because it's got a high COVID burden. You don't want to base it on population. And the consequence is, if you look at Africa, um, now there may be under-testing, under-reporting, but the evidence we have is that it's not been overwhelmed by COVID. It hasn't spread very much there. And yet COVAX just released its first uh, group of vaccine to Ghana, uh, where at least the people I've talked to, it's like COVID is not a real big deal in Ghana. Um, so you want, you're kind of scratching your head. Is that equitable that uh, you take a country without a big COVID burden and you give it the, give that country just because it's it's poor, a lot of vaccine. Equitable, in my opinion, again, is you've got to give vaccine to where there's a big burden. There are plenty of 
low-income or low-middle-income countries like Peru, where there is a heavy burden, and they ought to be high on the list for getting the uh, vaccine uh, when we uh, that's being distributed globally. So I think that's the way to think about this problem. Again, we're talking with medical ethicist Zeke Emanuel. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Michael and Arroyo Grande join us. Hi, Michael. Good afternoon. Hi. Oh, this dog's not going to go up. Okay, uh, question. I went down to Walmart, and no problem, filled out the paperwork, and um, received my shot, and, you know, thank you and goodbye. Everything was taken care of. Now I'm hearing, oh, we should get a second or maybe a third shot, and if so, is this necessary? Oh, oh I'm, I'm, I'm 82. You're 82. Uh, well, we touched on this a little bit, but I don't know if you've just a quick reply to Michael. <laughs> so, uh, first of all, you know, this issue of, uh, of uh, a postponed second dose or a second dose in, you know, three or four weeks. Um, at the moment, the rule is second dose in three or four weeks. You definitely shouldn't. I'm not getting a second dose. That, that would be the wrong thing to do. Um, and until the rules change, I would say, yes, you should get that second dose when they have scheduled your second appointment. The third dose, we don't know. And uh, we don't have any, any uh, um, data on its efficacy. Uh, I think Pfizer is conducting a study on the third dose. But before anyone gets a third dose, we really need to, be, to uh, uh, widely distribute the vaccine and get up to 70 or so percent of the population where we get herd immunity. So that's, well, me, that's how I would think about it. Let me thank Michael and go to Natalie in Davis. Hi, Natalie. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. So my situation is I'm a quadriplegic and then in bed all the time now unless I have to go to doctor's appointments. I get some paid healthcare workers that come and go, but just a couple times a week. The rest of the time, my husband who teleworks is my hands-on care provider. He does wound care and other hands-on things, but he's not a paid healthcare worker. So I've been told from my turn, the hotline, they say he doesn't qualify. Do you think that's what the definition means? No, he's not a healthcare worker that sees a lot of people, but he sees me. And if I got COVID, the outcome would not be good. Hmm. Uh, I'm sorry for your situation. And I agree with your assessment. If you got COVID, everything we know about being high risk, it it wouldn't be good. Um, uh, The rules... uh, This issue of unpaid caregivers and paid caregivers is um, a problem. It is the general rule is that unpaid caregivers aren't on a priority list. Uh, They tend to be family members. um, And uh, that is is the way uh, people have decided it. Now, part of the reason is that paid caregivers uh, who work for home health care agencies or who work in nursing home and then also work in other venues they go from patient to patient to patient, and if they got infected, they would really spread it. And I think that's uh, the major uh, concern. Um, whereas a lot of uh, unpaid um, home uh, providers to their family members, uh, you know, either don't work outside the house or uh, can take other precautions that a uh, uh, someone who sees a lot of patients can't. 
I hope that provides the, the explanation. It may not be satisfactory, but that I think was the thinking behind the policy. Do you want me to give you one more uh, ethical question of a listener? <laughs> If I can answer it quickly. <laughs> Elizabeth writes, my mother and her sister, both 70, and my grandmother, 102, all refuse the vaccine, whereas my husband and I, both 47 years old, really want the vaccine but can't get it. Is it ethical for the refusers to be able to give their dose to someone who really wants it but isn't eligible? That's simple. No. Uh -huh. That would be, I don't think that's right, because I, I, I do think that, you know, we want to get all the high-risk people, not just your family members who are high-risk um, to be able to give it to you. I understand you want it. I want it just like you want it. Uh, we have to wait our turn. Leave us with a closing thought, Dr. Emanuel, about what you think is important to keep in mind about the situation we're in now. I'm thinking about just the, the stresses we're under as this vaccine rollout proceeds. Yes, we're all under serious stress. And yes, I think uh, as most of your people, we want to do the right thing. And the right thing is to try to stick to the uh, rules that have been established, albeit they're not perfect and they won't answer every situation because we have 300 million people in a lot of complex situations. Um, and we should, as a society, uh, be very clear that we the common good is what's important here and every individual self-interest really important, but should not trump trying to get our arms around this uh, pandemic and making it safe for everyone in the country to get vaccinated. We need to minimize the risks, to promote equity, and uh, to ensure that people are not discriminated against. Well, Those are our most important values. Dr. Emanuel, thanks so much. Thanks to Susan Britton for producing this. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.